If you could turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black one just like this in front of you, underneath the seat. Turn to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. And then see what the Lord has for us this morning. Starting in verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephirah, Be'erot, and Kiriat-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. 
So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Well, we've got a lot to do, so let's pray and we'll dig in. Lord, thank you for this story, this true story in your word. We thank you that it is for um, us uh, 3,000 plus years later. God, would you wake us up? Would you um, speak to our hearts? Would you open our eyes to see what you have for us, the good things that you have for us this morning in your word? Lord, we pray that you would afflict us if we are too comfortable, that you would comfort us if we are afflicted. Lord, that you would convict of sin, that you would encourage. God, this morning we need you to do your work, the work that we cannot do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to say, and Lord, would you, through your Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking this week, I think one of the most well-known verses in the Bible is probably Proverbs sixteen eighteen. And in the English Standard Version, it goes like this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We normally shorten it to pride comes before a fall. Yes, see, you all knew that. <laughs> it's a very common a verse that we're familiar with, but sometimes I think we're so familiar with it, we don't understand what it's saying. We don't remember the message of it. And all we need to do, besides look in the mirror and see it work out, sometimes on a daily basis, is to turn in our Bibles and look at the stories that are presented in it. So the book of Esther, the man named Haman, who is so confident of his ways that he builds a gallows in public to hang a Jew named Mordecai that he doesn't like. The irony is, who gets hanged on those gallows? Haman does. He gets hanged because pride goes before destruction. Or think of King Nebuchadnezzar walking along his massive palace, looking out at great Babylon. And he says, look what I have done. And the Bible says before the words have left his mouth, the God of heaven speaks to him. And in a a blink of an eye, the greatest king in the world has to be put out to pasture because he's gone insane. Pride goes before destruction. Or you can think of modern day examples. I think of athletes making bold predictions about what they or their team will accomplish and then having to, as we call it, eat crow when that does not materialize. All too often that is the case. You can think, no doubt, of many times in your own life where you've learned this lesson, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so I thought this week, what is it about pride that is so destructive? Because isn't it one of those kind of sins that's okay to confess to? And we don't want to confess to secret, dirty, dark sins, but it's kind of like the Christian default. I'm struggling with pride. What is it about that sometimes lets us downplay the sin of pride? Well, I, was, I thought, isn't it exactly what Satan tempted Eve with in the garden at the very beginning? You will be like God. Or, or maybe something more insidious that perhaps Satan was also thinking, you can be God. 
This, I think, is, is at the heart of pride. And often, pride is tied to our successes. So you got a promotion, or you got a raise, or you graduated, and you got honors, or you built something, or the list goes on and on. And with success often comes the temptation to pride. Is, is that right? When we do something well, we are more tempted to pride. Pastor Tim Keller says this, Success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. We want to be the ones that save ourselves. We're Americans. We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can do anything. You can be anything. When you grow up, you can be an astronaut. You can be the President of the United States. And praise the Lord that that often is true in America. However, there's a flip side to that, I think. And I think it comes in the form, too often, of pride. So this morning I want to look at Joshua 9 and the related themes here. Uh, You'll notice in your notes I've called the sermon Duped, The Dangerous Deception of Success. And if you've not been with us for a while, we've been going through um, the book of Joshua in a series that we're calling Following His Lead, Stepping Out in Faith for the Faithful One. So maybe you just want to turn in your Bible or swipe on your app back to Joshua chapter 1 and just look. You've got some titles in there that are not scripture. They're added in, but they're helpful. And just breeze through. What, what have we been studying? In Joshua 1, we saw God commissioning Joshua, urging him to be strong and courageous. The people recognized his leadership and authority as he succeeded Moses. Then in chapter 2, we saw the great faith of a Gentile, not just a Gentile, a prostitute named Rahab. as She hid the Israelite spies and is commended for her faith. In chapter 3, Israel watched as Yahweh parted another body of water. Forty years after the Red Sea, Yahweh parts the Jordan River and the people go across on dry land. In chapter 4, we talked about the importance of remembering as Joshua piles stones as a memorial to see and remember what God had done for his people. Chapter 5, we saw Israel obeying God and circumcising all the males who had not been circumcised in the wilderness. And they also celebrated their first Passover in the land, and that coincided with the cessation of 40 years of manna. Chapter 6, we heard the famous story of the Battle of Jericho. And we saw that God did much or all of the heavy lifting. Chapter 7 and 8, these last two Sundays, we talked about the disaster, the setback of the loss at Ai, or Ai, as Joshua and the Israelites suffer their first setback and um, must regroup and figure out what is wrong with sin in the camp. And that leads us directly into Joshua chapter 9. And we must remember that um, the context is important because as we, as we get into the first few verses, not remembering what's come before um, will kind of limit what you're able to get out of this morning. And there's one more thing by way of introduction. Sometimes... I think if we've grown up in the... By the way, how many of you grew up in the church? Like you were a kid in Sunday school or Awana, okay? A good good chunk of us, praise the Lord, that there are those in here who were saved later in life. We thank God for that. But sometimes it's easy to see Old Testament stories and our first connection with them 
is when I was four, which is not bad. Praise the Lord that our parents, our Sunday school teachers, our Wana teachers, whoever taught us those stories. But I think sometimes we're stuck back at the lessons of when I was four. Or we remember those things um, and we haven't moved on. Or worse, we think we know that story and therefore don't need to pay attention. And and I'm concerned about that in my own life um, as I study the scriptures. And so as we get to Joshua chapter 9, just a few reminders for me and for us. Um, we're about to see on the screen um, some helpful reminders that this is real. This happened. This is not a fairy tale. This is not fiction. It's not so-called blind faith. What you and I are studying today and the book you hold in your hands is true. It's historical it is authoritative for our lives. And and second, in order to to get something out of this, I think we must learn or relearn to engage our imagination. Now, don't hear me say you need to make stuff up when you're hearing a Bible story. But, But we need to use our imagination to take the words on the page and form the pictures in our head. And my generation especially, but even those before me, we we've been stunted a little bit, haven't we? Um, with the screen. We don't have to make a picture of it. The picture is there for us. And so I I just want to make a call to all of us this morning that we need to engage our imaginations as we read. This is the Word of God. It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Tony Ranke has written a great book called Lit, short for literature, and he said this, without an active imagination... And but don't don't think just three year old, okay? <laughs> active imagination is okay all the way through life. He says, without an active imagination, a good bit of the Bible will be hard to read, difficult to understand, and impossible to appreciate. And I think that's true. So we we should ask, what can we learn from an ancient people in a faraway land that lived more than three thousand years ago? And God in his providence has given us two scripture passages, um, more than that, but two very explicit ones in the New Testament that tell us what the Old Testament is for. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.11, Now these things happened to them, speaking of the Israelites, as an example But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so, church, there's gold. We just need to dig. And we need to get into this passage. So, point number one in your notes, if you're taking notes, very simple today. Point number one, Israel's failure leads the nations to fight. Israel's failure leads the nations to fight. You'll see that in verses one and two. Verse 1 says that the kings who were beyond the Jordan and then describes the places um, in which they lived. And we've been using a map. You'll see here the map that we have been using of the land of Canaan and the allotments of the tribes. But we have, I know it's small print, but we have talked about the children of Israel coming from the wilderness, crossing the Jordan to Jericho. And they've come into this land right in the middle. There's a lot north and there's a lot south. 
And so as we get into the narratives, it's, it's really helpful to go back to the maps. I don't know about you, but when I read Lord of the Rings, I have a bookmark in the back because I want to know where these places are. I can't even pronounce them. How am I supposed to remember where they are if I don't have a map? So to have a map is really helpful. How many of you have a study Bible right now? You have maps. Use them. They are very, very helpful. I do want to point out as well that you see some geographical locations here that kind of help us to set the stage. And I would want to say that ESV does a lousy job of interpretation here. Um, it, it kind of makes it sound like there's only two parts uh, of geography here. And I think the NIV and some other translations do a better job of denoting three separate but important places in the land of Israel. Here is a satellite photo of the land of Israel. And you can see that in the text, the author of Joshua writes about the hill country. And you'll see this spine right in the middle of the country. This is the hill country. And then it says, depending on your version, the foothills or the lowlands. And in Hebrew, it's the Shvelah. And this is this kind of transitional period between the hills and the coast. And these are rolling hills. So um, if you go to Israel, there's a lot of vineyards there. There's a lot of farming and some forests. And then you'll see a reference to the coastal plain. And this is very easy to see here right up against the beach. These are the different regions, the different places that people lived. And, and the point here is to say all of the people of Canaan were now rising up against this new threat. So the point here is not just to give you geographical locations. That's helpful because we begin to see how large this place is. But we also are able to see that this is not one-on-one -on -one anymore. The people of Canaan are ganging up. You'll see that list of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites in verse 1. But you also see a very interesting phrase. Look, at, look down at your Bible, the last phrase in verse 1. They've heard of this. So the question becomes, what is this? What have they heard? What is the this that they heard of? And, and I'm, I think it's the whole... I, A-I, Achan, uh, narrative leading up to this. Because here's what the people of the land had heard in chapter 2. Rahab said, our hearts melted when we heard what the Lord had done. In chapter 5, it's relayed again that the people of Canaan heard what God had done for his people and their hearts melted. But now they've heard, and what do they do? Verse 2, they gather together as one. They put aside differences. They make an alliance to come against Joshua and Israel. I think what they've heard, the heard of this phrase at the end of verse 1, I think what they've heard is the failure. Look, Israel can be beaten. They can be defeated. Their God did part the Jordan, but look, they also lost a battle. So now, Israel seems to, to have a weakness. They're able to be uh, competed against. They're able to be defeated. And so the peoples of the land gather together. And then here's the weird part. But the narrator knows what he's doing. We don't hear about those people the rest of the chapter. It just drops. All these people gather together. You know, it's the big dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, right? The, all the orcs coming together in Lord of the Rings. Big battle scene. And then it leaves. Whoop, it's gone. And it doesn't even come back until the next chapter. So what the author of Joshua is doing, and by implication, the author of the scriptures, God himself, is getting, kind of building some suspense. And this is where we need to use our imagination, because it's easy just to go, oh, no, all these ites are getting together, and okay, and they're getting together. 
But if we think about what that means, if we use our imagination to think about the alliances that are made, the preparations being made, the soldiers leaving their families, gathering to come and fight against Israel, this is a suspenseful action thriller. And we're left with a cliffhanger. And we won't get back to it until next week. Or after the week, week after that, because next week is Father's Day calendar note. That was actually more for myself, but... (laughs) So this is kind of the introduction. This is kind of what happens at the beginning of this chapter to kind of set the stage, and then we leave that stage, and we shift to another one. So if you'll see in your notes, point number two covers verses three through 15, and the point is this. Israel's success blinds them to their true need. Israel's success blinds them to their true need. The first word in verse three is what? Audience participation. The first word in verse 3 is but. Okay, but what? So we have this buildup of armies. Well, what we get now is we get what's called an adversative. This is different. Something different is going to happen. And what we see it's happening is we have a special group of people that now enter the scene. The Gibeonites in verse 3. And by the way, that verse 1, that saying, this is what I think the, the Canaanites had all heard of. This is like simple Bible interpretation. I got it from verse 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, so these people had heard of what Israel had done, and so by implication, I think the rest of the people of Israel had heard something similar. But the Gibeonites take a different note. They decide not to gather together, not to make alliances and to get their troops, but they decide to go, verse 4, act with cunning. They're going to be clever or shrewd, which is interesting because if you just flip your page over, it might be on the same page of your Bible, chapter 10, where we're we're going to get to that next. Look at verse 2. Gibeon's not a podunk hick town in the middle of nowhere. Verse 2, Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I and all its men were warriors. So this is not a, a peaceful people that are just deciding, oh, we don't want to fight. This is, this is a, a city, this is a people with warriors. And yet they decide to take a different approach to the people of Israel. They go for cunning. And so the author takes great pains. You, you notice that when we read it, worn out, worn out, worn out. You got worn out from hearing worn out. And, and they, they begin to put on a show. They begin to resort to theater rather than tactics. And so they pretend to be who they're not. They pretend to be who they're not. They come to the camp where Joshua is and the people of Israel and they appear ready to put on a show. So in verse 6, they show up and they say, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. They, They pretend that they've come from far away. And now the people of Israel presented with a choice, with a challenge, because the request is from these people to make a covenant with them. Now turn back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Just one book back, Deuteronomy chapter 20. And God has given his people, while they were still in the wilderness, laws concerning warfare. How were they to conduct themselves in war? And what God did is he actually gave them two different sets of instructions. He said, when you get to the land of Canaan, wipe them out. 
Okay? Don't let leave in alive anything that breathes is one of the statements. But then also what's given in verse 10, we see, Deuteronomy 20 verse 10, is another instruction. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But you'll notice if you read that whole context, that is not for any cities in Canaan. That is only to be an expansion outside of the lands of Canaan. When they get to a city in Canaan, they are, there's no black and, there's no gray, it's black and white. Destroy the city. Destroy the people inside of the city. And so, in the back of the Israelites' mind, they have these instructions. They have these rules of how they're to carry out war. And so when these people come up, these Gibeonites show up and they say, make a covenant with us, the Israelites respond rightly. Look at verse 7. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? See, they're aware of the law and they're ready to follow it. They say, wait a second. They, They recognize this might not be the truth. Okay, so they, they, they're, not, they're not completely naive here. Okay, let's do a covenant. No, no they, they see this, this might be a ploy. This might be a ruse. And so you'll see the back and forth there for several verses. You'll even see in verse 8 where they kind of continue to play the part, we are your servants, presenting themselves before the people of Israel. And they even say in verse 9, they're, they're, very, they're very clever, why have they come? Because of the name of Yahweh, your God. We heard about your God. Okay, this is what they present. They say, this is what he did. We know what he did to the, the, to the Egyptians and to the people on the other side of the Jordan. And they say, here's what our elders told us to do. They told us to, to come and show you. And it's repeated again. We, brought, we have old wineskins. Look. And so they're, they're, they're traveling and they show their wares. Look, our sandals are worn out. Look, our wineskins don't hold any wine anymore. Look, our bread is crumbly and brittle and yucky. Right? So they're playing the part. They're showing them what's going on. Now, it's important to see what happens next because the Scriptures now give us an interpretive moment, which is really exciting because some, some passages don't give us anything to see explicitly. But right here in verse 14, we're helped. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And the question then, not just for the children of Israel, but for our lives as well, is have we learned nothing? Have we learned anything here? What was the problem with I? Well, Joshua just continued on his way. And they decided, let's go to attack this city. They did not consult. They did not ask counsel. They did not seek the Lord, um, or seek the mouth is actually the, the Hebrew phrase here. They didn't seek his face, his mouth. They didn't go before him and try to get information from the Lord. They decided to do it on their own. Now, this is not said in the text, but I think it's fair to say that the success of Jericho and the success of I have now inflated the Israelites' egos. They've made an incursion into the land they have begun to make progress. If you'll see, even this next picture shows they've, they've come in and they have crossed and now they've begun to come into the land. Here's where we think I is, an important city, Bethel, right next to it, right on a ridge route that's really important for trade. You'll notice how close they are to Jerusalem, which we'll see in chapter 10 is very important. 
And they've begun to make inroads. They're doing what God told them to do. And they're rightly excited, but they forget the Lord. It's not hard to make application to our lives. Right? Um, When we are successful, we tend to think that we did it. That we can succeed on our own. That we don't, and we wouldn't say this, right? But we don't need God. Because, look at me. I did that. I did that on my own. I did, I, I got that promotion. I said no to that temptation. I did it. I think this is the lesson for us here. Very explicitly in the text. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. And I think we have to be a little bit careful here. This does not mean that you get up in the morning and say, Lord, do you want me to get dressed? Lord, should I brush my teeth today? This is not what this is saying. However, it's also not saying the opposite, that we only seek the Lord for big decisions. Right? How many times has what we thought was a little decision turned out to be a big decision? So I think that the, the posture here ought to be dependence. We are a people that like independence, right? We've got less than a month before we celebrate Independence Day. We're Americans, right? We don't have a king. No one can tell me what to do. I'm, it's a free country, right? This is our temptation to be independent. No, we need to be dependent. This is the New Testament instruction to pray how often? Without ceasing. Unceasingly pray. Now, that, again, that does not mean that you close your eyes going 70 miles. Don't go 70 unless that's, the, unless that's the speed limit. Going on the freeway, you're going 65 strictly. It's not time to close your eyes and say the Lord's Prayer with your hands folded. Okay? What, what this means is that our lives need to look like a posture of prayer. The, the proud life, the independent life, Okay, does not need to stop and do that or does not need to depend on the Lord because I can do it. The fundamental understanding for us to come to this morning is that we can't do it. Jesus told his disciples, without me, you can do some things. Is that what he said? Without me, you can do how much? Nothing. Now, the question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that? See, because here's the world we live in as well. Right? I can go get supplements. I can work out. I can make sure that I'm staying away from fatty foods. And, and then I am in control. Look, I've lost weight. I'm feeling better. Look what I did. I am healthy. Nothing can stop me. <laughs> right? So, I mean, how many healthy people die of an unexpected heart attack? Or how many people that are watching their weight religiously and strictly find out they have cancer? So... so By the way, the message is not stop working out. (laughs) The message is be dependent. Recognize the Lord is in charge. You're not. This is the understanding that the children of Israel should have come from. But they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And so as we continue, look at verse 15. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. Okay? That, that's, the, that's the key here. The key phrase of the covenant is, you don't die. Okay? Which is what the Gibeonites wanted, right? The Gibeonites went to go save their life. They did the calculation. Hmm. 
This people crossed over a raging river in flood season because their God parted the waters. They walked around a city and the walls fell down. This is not looking good for us. And so they decide with cunning to go in and to get this covenant. And Joshua and the leaders do it. The leaders join in. The end of verse 15, the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So Joshua and the leaders are all implicated in not seeking the Lord's face. Can I ask you, please pray for our elders at this church. Please pray for the leaders of ministries that we would seek the Lord's face. Please, please pray for us. We need prayer. We need um, wisdom from God in how to lead this church. Uh, I would ask you to do that for us, please. What should have happened is actually what we see at the commissioning of Joshua back in Numbers. So quickly, please, go back two books to the book of Numbers, chapter 27. This goes back to kind of the official commissioning of Joshua as the successor to Moses. So before Moses is going to go off the scene, um, it is important that the people know who will, who will succeed him. And so Joshua is brought before the whole congregation. He's brought before them, and Yahweh, the God of Israel, tells Moses what to do. So look at verse 18 of Numbers 27. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son, of man, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. Lay your hand on him. Notice this part. Make him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. So he's before all the people, but specifically he's in front of the priest, Eleazar. Okay? And he shall stand before Eleazar, the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. Now the Urim, the Urim and Tumim are something that's mentioned on, on the high priest's breastplate. We're not exactly sure what it was like. It, it might have been something like casting lots, so they might have been kind of like dice, or they might have been something that's more like a heads or tails. Um, God used the Urim and the Tumim to help Israel um, figure out what he, what he wanted them to do. Sometimes God just spoke and said, Go! But sometimes... Um, the people of Israel came to God to inquire of him, and this is how they found out what they should do. So at Joshua's commissioning, <laughs> it's told to everybody. He should go to Eleazar, the high priest, and say, hey, we need to know what the Lord wants us to do. Do that thing with the Urim and Tumim, and let's find out what God wants us to do. At his commissioning, he was told how to inquire of the Lord. In Joshua chapter 9, they totally bypassed that totally bypass the way that God has provided for them to know God's will. Do you know that God has provided a way for you to know His will? Sometimes, sometimes American Christians, we, we really struggle with God's will. What is God's will for my life? Well, it's not going to help just saying that. He's given us a book. There are even passages you could look up that say, this is the will of God. That, that, I love those passages because then there's no mistaking what the will of God is. Church, God's given us multiple avenues of figuring out what His will for us is. Now, that doesn't mean we go into every decision with full 100% confidence that we're doing the right thing. It does mean that if we consult God's Word and we consult with wise Christians around us and we pray and we depend on the Lord, that we can be confident that He knows what we're getting into and that He's not absent from that. And so the people of God miss out on this opportunity. Folks, we have, we have, we have, we have means of knowing what God wants for our life. So 
do you, do you want to know what God's will is for your life? Don't miss the means he's given us to figure that out. Joshua had the Urim. He had Eleazar. We have the scriptures. We have wise Christians around us. We have millions of books and resources that we can go to for help. We have ways of finding this out. Well, as we finish up, the point number three, Israel's mistake offers opportunities. Israel's mistake offers opportunities. And, and I'm, I'm just going to, I think these are more implications. So some of these may seem a little out there. I, I, think, that, I think they're based in the text. I think they're in there. Um, but you've got several points here below. And I just want you to see what happens. Three days later, verse 16, Israelites find out, whoops, those people actually live a few miles over that way. Okay, and we're not, we're not talking like a long way. We're talking like we're in Garden Grove and we go, oh, those guys aren't from Nevada. They're from Huntington Beach. <laughs> They're actually pretty close. Okay, the Gibeonites were close by. Not only that, we find out in verse 17 that they have a confederacy of cities. Oh, I forgot to show you some pictures. Here's Gibeon. We almost know for sure that this is the site of Gibeon. There's a valley that you can see all the farmland and then this, this tell or mound comes up. They found all kinds of incredible architectural finds in the 2% of that place that they've dug up. So there's, there's treasures waiting. Um, there's another view. You can just see how high up off the ground it is. There's a massive water system there um, that's referenced in the time of David. Um, and so this is a place that you can visit. Now, you can go to Gibeon. The Gibeonites live there. That's it. Um, just an incredible opportunity. Well, the, the Gibeonites seem to have a little confederacy of cities. They lived in Gibeon and Beirut and Kephirah and Kiryat-Jerim. When um, Amy and I lived in Israel, we stayed on the hill right across from Kiryat-Jerim. There it is, right across the hill. These are real places. And these people, the Gibeonites, lived in these places. And so Israel goes up to them. But verse 18, they did not attack them. So, so they travel to do uh, negotiations. They're not traveling to attack. Why? Well, because they made a vow. They signed a covenant. And they cannot break that. Verse 18, the, the children of Israel have a problem with that. Um, they murmur against the leaders, but the leaders, I think, rightly say that we've sworn to them, verse, 20, uh, verse 19, by Yahweh, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. So I think what's, what's key here is they recognize they were duped. This was, this was wrong. But they made a covenant, and to break that covenant, to break their word, is a serious, serious issue. And the reason we know that's true is because hundreds of years later, King Saul just t- tries to go in and destroy the rest of the Gibeonites who are still living among Israel. And years later during King David's time, there's a three-year famine. And David's like, Lord, what is going on? And the answer is, Saul tried to kill all the Gibeonites. And so I sent a three-year famine on you. This is a big deal. In order for the famine to end, David has to give seven of Saul's sons over to the Gibeonites who kill those sons and that's how it ends. So, so we find out this is, this is a serious business to break a covenant, to break your vow, to break an oath. That's why the Old Testament and the New Testament uniformly say, be very careful when you give your word. It is that important. Well, some of the points here, uh, point, number, point 
number, letter A, for God's mercy. It's an opportunity for God's mercy. Just briefly, please note that God does not punish Israel here. Israel is, there are consequences to this, but Israel is not punished like with Achan and the battle of Ai. So there's no punishment meted out by the Lord on his people here. Um, They made a mistake. They did something wrong, but the Lord is merciful. He doesn't punish Israel. Okay, B, uh, this is an opportunity for proving faithful. The the vow, the oath, the covenant that we just talked about, um, they have an opportunity they, they made a mistake, right? So here, they made a mistake. So, so now what do we do? Well, we, we, we gave our word. So now they have an opportunity to be faithful to our word. This happens to us, right? We make mistakes. We do the wrong thing. And sometimes when we've made a commitment, we need to stick with that commitment. Now, if that, that, is, that doesn't mean if you made a commitment to sin that you continue with it. But if you made a mistake and got yourself into something that's not sinful but just happens to be... Uh, I, what's the word I'm looking for? Something that you don't want to be in, in a, you don't want to be a part of. Sometimes you've got to keep your word. You said it, and you've got you to stick with it. You've got to be faithful to your word. What kind of person are you? Are you the person that goes back on your word? Well, the Israelites here had a chance to prove faithful. Verse 20, they say, we ought to let them live, lest wrath be upon us. And so they decide not to wipe them out. Letter C, it's an opportunity for cursing an enemy. So there are consequences, and the consequences to the Gibeonites are that they will be servants. Now remember what chapter 10 says about their city. It's a big city. It's a royal city. They have warriors. And now they're going to be servants, and what do they get to do? They get to chop wood and carry water. <laughs> That's a curse, right? That, that is not good news for the Gibeonites. The, the, the good news is they get to live. The bad news is they don't get to live the standard that they thought that they had enjoyed before. Letter D, it's an opportunity for subduing an enemy. Notice that God gives victory over four cities without any blood spilled. God gives them victory over these people. And we'll see that this covenant in chapter 10 must have included some kind of mutual defense pact. Because in chapter 10, the cities are going to rise up and they're going to go attack Gibeon. And Gibeon cries to Israel and Israel comes to rescue Gibeon. So part of this covenant was for them to be in a mutual defense pact. They're, they're designated as servants. Israel is designated as their protector. And what's incredible about this is that as they are subdued and as they become servants, we notice in the book of Nehemiah that hundreds, almost a thousand years later, when the exiles return to the land and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, Gibeonites are there building the wall. And so, letter E, there's an opportunity for bringing an enemy near. Isn't this just like God? <laughs> he takes these Canaanites, these Gentiles who were condemned to death, and they get to, they get to chop wood and give water for what? The altar of the Lord. They get in on the worship of the one true God. God brings them close and says, this is your job. You're right in the sound of church bells. You're right here. You see the worship of God going on. So God graciously, a little hint, a little foreshadowing of bringing in the Gentiles. How many Gentiles do we have in the room? (laughs) Praise the Lord that God has included the Gentiles. That is the means of our salvation. Well, as we conclude, let's think about what it means 
to ask counsel from the Lord. Do you need wisdom? Do you need wisdom? Uh, do you need advice on how to deal with a complicated ethical dilemma? Anybody have an issue at work you need some help with? Uh, anyone deciding what college to visit or apply to? Uh, anybody at the end of your rope with your kids? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Seek counsel. Um, could you use help knowing how to deal with your aging parents or grandparents? Do you have issues in your life that you don't have the wisdom for? Here's James 1.5 for us this morning. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Why? He gives generously to all without reproach. There are other verses that we're familiar with to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him. What will he do? Make your path straight. This is the God we serve. He gives wisdom. But listen, we have to seek it. We need to seek it. That's, that's a, the fundamental posture of humility is to ask, is to seek, is to submit. And that ought to characterize us as a people. So as we go this morning, we can learn from the children of Israel. Satan is wily. He is not limited to one strategy. And he often does not come at us and say, would you like to totally blow up your marriage and destroy your life? Generally, that's not how Satan tempts us, correct? It's much more cunning and clever. And so we need to ask counsel from the Lord. We need to be dependent on the Lord. As the psalmists say again and again, we need to cry out to the Lord. When we realize who we are and what we are before a good and all-knowing God, we realize we need help. Amen? Here's the good news. Help's been given. Help's been offered. And ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So let's close this morning and ask the Lord for wisdom and to help us. God, we thank you for this word from Joshua 9. We thank you that, that Lord, that as you were merciful with the children of Israel, so you have been merciful with us. There's so much that we don't deserve, and yet you have made our cups overflow. Lord, you have given us your scriptures. Help us not to ignore them. Help us not to have the Bible as some kind of paperweight on our desk. God, that it might be our direct access to your words. We do not need to wonder what you have to say or what you have said. It's before us. So God, humble us, help us to see that we are dependent and that we need you and that we need others around us that you've placed in our lives. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he loved us and gave himself for us, that we might, when we repent and believe, be given eternal life, forgiveness of our sins, and power to walk in a manner worthy of of the calling that you've called us to. So Lord, as we go from this place where it's easy to be a Christian to places where it's not as easy, would you give us wisdom and strength as we desire to live for you in this world? In Jesus' name, amen.